Good morning again. Keep your Bible open, would you? And let's pause and let's, let's pray together. Join me in praying. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And may the thoughts and the affections, the desires, the intentions of all of our hearts be directed to our Lord Jesus Christ. May what is said, what is spoken, what is preached be spirit-led, be grace-filled, and be helpful, I pray, for Jesus' sake, for the good of these brothers and sisters that have gathered here this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage that Suai just read for us, I believe, teaches us something profound and yet something simple. And I want you to see this simple yet profound truth, but not only to see it this morning, to be encouraged by it. I want you to see the simple yet profound truth, and not only to see it, but to savor, you might say, this simple and profound truth. Because I think this is why. Jesus says what he says in this part of the Sermon on the Mount here in the passage that was just read for us. He wants the disciples, he wants us to see something and to savor something. He wants us to grasp something about who we are as followers of Jesus, something singularly important about our identity as followers of Jesus, but he wants us to be encouraged by it as well. He wants what has been read for us to be to us good news, to be encouraging, to be strengthening, to shore up doubts you might have about the wisdom of following Jesus, to fend off discouragement you might experience because of your decision to follow Jesus. To steady, <clears throat> excuse me, steady you when you're wavering in your commitment to Jesus. And you start thinking it might be easier or less complicated if you weren't a follower of Jesus. I think Jesus is speaking these words for those who are in that kind of situation. And what does Jesus do in this passage that was read for us? He calls his disciples two names. Salt and light. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And there, verse 14, you are the light of the world. He calls them salt and light. And what he means by that, I think, is simply this. Disciples are distinct. Disciples of Jesus are distinct. Followers of Jesus, they stand out in the world, and they stand out from the world. They're not like the world. They're different. They're set apart, you might say. They're unique. They're unusual. They are as distinct as salt would be in your water, or salt would be on the top of your ice cream. They are as distinct as light would be in your basement cellar or your windowless closet or in a dark woods. 
There's nothing typical, there's nothing normal, there's nothing status quo about being a disciple of Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. You cannot blend in with the crowd. You cannot just go with the flow as a follower of Jesus. And why not? Well, because Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And whatever else those two images mean, salt and light, preservative, or whatever other kind of ancient background might have significance and impact on the meaning of these two images, they're meant to communicate at least this, that disciples are distinct from their environment. Salt from the non-salty, and light from darkness. Disciples are distinct. Now, I wonder what goes on inside of you when you hear that. That a disciple is distinct. Perhaps you call yourself a disciple of Jesus this morning, and you hear this claim from, I think, this passage that you are therefore distinct as a follower of Jesus. No status quo, not normal, not sort of go with the, go with the flow and fit in with the crowd. You are distinct. I wonder what goes on inside of you. Perhaps for some of you, what goes on is excitement, maybe even elation. You've always thought of yourself as a unique and special person, and hearing this is like a badge of honor. Perhaps others of you, though, have feelings of unease and disquiet, perhaps even feelings of fear and trepidation, because the last thing you'd want to be is distinct from others, like different and a standout. Like the last thing you would want to be known as is the person who doesn't really gel with the crowd. Well, the last thing you would want is for you to be talked about after you leave the room as being sort of different and odd and no one's quite sure why. You don't like the attention. And you certainly don't like the awkward feelings. It creates the kind of relational tension and friction with your friends at school or your colleagues at work or your family at home. Let me say that both reactions are very normal and typical for Christians. Some get excited about being distinct and others would rather have anything else than standing out in that way. Let me also say there are benefits, and of course there are challenges with both of those reactions. There are challenges. The one can lead to kind of the excitement, can lead to a kind of spiritual elitism or pride, a kind of holier-than-thou mentality like, yes, I'm different, aren't I, for Jesus? The other, though, the kind of angst about it can lead to a cowardice, a passivity that can come across as though you've got nothing to offer a confused and dying world. Regardless of what your reaction is, though, I think the important thing to remember from this passage is this, that the distinct thing about disciples 
The distinct thing about you as a disciple of Jesus isn't you. It's Christ in you. That's the distinct thing. Disciples of Jesus are distinct from the world around them. They are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world, but not because of any human characteristic or quality they possess, but because of Christ. And so there's no natural, you might say, explanation. There's no natural explanation for your distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus. There is only a supernatural explanation. It's the only one that makes sense of your distinctiveness. There's a great story in the Bible that illustrates this point, I think, beautifully, powerfully. It's in the book of Acts. It's from the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And there the scene is Peter and John, these two early disciples of Jesus, are holding forth in the temple. They're in the temple in Jerusalem, and they're holding, they're talking and preaching about Jesus, and and they're sort of impressing the crowds, and the crowds are trying to figure this out because there's nothing very distinctive about these two ordinary Galileans, and yet there's something very distinctive about them. This is the way the book of Acts, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, puts it. Listen to this. Quote, now, when they, saw, <clears throat> when they saw the boldness of Peter and John as they were preaching and teaching and perceived that they were uneducated common men, there was nothing distinctive about them, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Not a natural ex- explanation for their distinctiveness, but a supernatural one, they had been with Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about it using a different image, the distinctiveness of being a follower of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about it this way, that we are the aroma of Christ. Quote, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Paul here using the image of smell. Jesus using the image of taste and the image of sight. Paul, the aroma of Christ. Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light. But the same point in all three images. Disciples are distinct. They stand out in the world and from the world. And why is that? Why is that? Well, because genuine followers of Jesus have experienced something profound. A radical change of nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way, quote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A radical change of nature. The followers of Jesus have also experienced a definitive death of the old man. Not just a change of nature. 
as though something were inserted on top of the old, but a definitive death of the old man. This is the way Paul puts it again in the book of Galatians. Listen, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Something has died within you. Or from Romans, he puts it this way, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are enslaved to sin, a definitive death of the old man. But genuine followers of Jesus are also distinct for a third and I think most important reason because of this, because they now experience the transforming work of the Spirit in their life, the powerful presence of the Spirit of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, listen to this. We all, that is followers of Jesus, genuine disciples, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, the transforming presence of the Spirit of God. And so followers of Jesus are distinct because they are radically new. That's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. A new heart, a new nature, you are a new creation, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new taste buds to savor, things that are now delightful to you that would have been drab to you before, a new heart to desire the beauty of God, new affections that delight not in what used to amuse you, but what now honors Christ a new way of life. As the Bible puts it, a new walk. You walk, as the Bible puts it, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so you are distinct. You have been made new as a follower of Jesus. You are salt and light. It's the nature of being distinct in this world as a follower of Jesus. But here's the dilemma. The dilemma with being distinct. Many of you know this dilemma. You know this lesson all too well. Some of you have had to learn this lesson the hard way, the very hard way. And the dilemma is this. Being distinct in the world draws animosity from the world. It's very interesting to note, look in your Bible, will you, at our passage, it's very interesting to note the immediate context to this famous saying about being salt and light in a city on a hill. You might get the impression if you were to read this in isolation and kind of extract it from the context of the Sermon on the Mountain, what comes before that, this is just kind of like a cool pep talk, like I'm salt and I'm light and isn't this awesome, I'm going to go shine for Jesus and make a big difference in the world and all this kind of cool stuff. But would you take a look with me at verses 10, 11, and 12 and what Jesus is talking about right before he talks about being salt and being light. And what you find in verses 10, 11, and 12 is Jesus is talking about his disciples, talking to his disciples, not about the success they're going to find in this life, 
but about the suffering they're going to experience in this life. Blessed are you, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus says. Blessed are you, next verse, where when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The real threat of persecution, that's the immediate context. Jesus talking about this very real prospect of being a follower of his, you will experience reviling and all kinds of pushback and animosity from the world if you are distinctive as a follower of Jesus. And so he preps them by talking about persecution and then shares that you are the salt and light of the world. But don't miss the broader context either. Take a look with me, will you, at chapter 10. The end of the Sermon on the Mount comes in chapter 7, and then chapters 8 and 9, Jesus goes about healing. There's a lot of healing stories and things in chapters 8 and 9, as we looked at last week. We talked about that last week, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and what follows. But you'll notice in verse 10, what happens after the healing ministry of Jesus is he transfers his ministry now in chapter 10 to his disciples. He commissions them to carry forth his ministry. He has unfurled the great sermon on the mount. He has healed many, and now he transfers the preaching and teaching and healing ministry of his onto his disciples. And notice what he says to them when he transfers his ministry to them. Verse 16 of chapter 10. Look there. Behold, he said. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated on by all for my name's sake persecuted, reviled, all kinds of evil spoken against you falsely on my account. It's coming. It's coming. If you preach the gospel of the kingdom and embody the realities of the Sermon on the Mount, it is coming. And so you see, when Jesus says these memorable, charming images and words in our chapter in front of us, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you see what Jesus is doing. He is readying his followers for battle. He is putting some steel cables in their souls. He is building a ballast so that they aren't tipped over when the waves come crashing on the boat of their life. He is readying them for pushback. He is readying them for animosity from the world as followers of Jesus because they will be distinct in the world. Of course, nobody wants to have pushback from the world. I don't know anybody who signs up when they become a follower of Jesus for pushback from the world. I know I certainly didn't. No one wants to be the source of relational friction and tension. 
No one wants to be on the receiving end of mistreatment or snide remarks and comments or marginalization in their relationships with friends or family or colleagues. No one wants that. And so what often happens when followers of Jesus who are salt and light, who are distinct in the world, What often happens as they go about living in the world but distinct from the world and receive animosity from the world, what happens is is they're tempted to respond in one of two ways when they experience this. On the one hand, followers of, of Jesus who are salt and light will withdraw from the world. They experience the animosity because the world takes notice, that's salt, that's light, pushes back on it, and rather than stay in the world, they withdraw from the world, they retreat into little enclaves of like-minded Christians, little cul-de-sacs of safe Christianity. The other temptation, though, maybe even worse, is to not withdraw from the world, when the world expresses animosity to you, but it's to become embittered toward the world. When you internalize all the slights or the mistreatment or the feeling of status marginalization by the power brokers of the world, when you even, even at the prospect of mistreatment, you become embittered toward the world. You let the prospect of mistreatment fester and spoil in your soul. You become embittered toward the world. And you know what that sounds like? It sounds kind of cranky and shrill and judgmental and self-righteous. This is where we need to remember that being distinct as a disciple is a good thing. Does that sound almost too simple? (laughs) Being distinct as a follower of Jesus is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make it an easy thing. It is a hard thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And why do I say it's a good thing? I say it's a good thing for this reason, because because the salt... And the light in our lives as followers of Jesus, it helps people see. See what? See Christ. That's what. When they see your life as a follower of Jesus, they see salt, they see light, or they taste salt and see light to be consistent with the image. What they see is they see not you. They see Christ in you. So notice what Jesus says at the end of this passage, the missional and transformational comment here at the close of the passage in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your transformed radically new life, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Being distinct draws animosity from the world, but being distinct is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. It helps people see. It helps them see Christ. 
I've shared my story of coming to Christ many times from the pulpit here at Calvary, and all y'all, you, you know where I met Jesus. McDonald's. I met Jesus at McDonald's. Became a Christian at the age of 16 from a non-Christian background. I met Jesus at a McDonald's, an older man who had the courage to share with me the good news of what Jesus had done for me on the cross and his resurrection, and I responded by the grace of God with faith. But truth be told, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I mean, I just thought I was getting my sins forgiven and the assurance of heaven, and then the rest was going to stay the same. I didn't really know I was signing up to become the salt of the earth or the light of the world. I would have preferred just to get saved and like keep the, the rest of my life normal, you might say. Kind of low profile, not ruffle any feathers in my home or with my friends, not create any tensions, keep everything just as it was. I just get to get saved and go to heaven when I die. But I quickly learned that that's not how Jesus works. And it didn't take long before the people around me started noticing that that's not how Jesus seems to work either. No, Jesus gets to work. That's the deal. He gets to work in your life. Changing you from the inside out. And people begin to notice. My family and my friends certainly began to notice. Not that I just started going to church on Sunday mornings, which I had never done until I'd become a Christian. And not that I had a Bible on my end table by my bedside that I'd never had before. I didn't even know really what a Bible was. No, the difference was both more subtle and more substantive than that. I was changing. My nature. My character. My life. And the change, while it was certainly hard at times, with tears at times, it was a good thing. The difference Jesus made in my life was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. I say a good thing because while it caused friction in a lot of relationships I had, it also forced people to see Jesus. Not me, but Christ in me. One person who saw Christ in me very up close and very personal, was my mother. I think my sibling, I have five of them, I think they thought that my Christian faith was going to be a fad, a passing phase, something I would grow out of and get over after a little bit of time. My mom, though, she knew something, something was different. Something seemed to be here to stay. And she knew that when she saw two things happen in my life. The first was, it was this. I no longer terrorize my little brother, Jamie. 
I mean, the poor kid. <laughs> we, my brother Spencer and I, we used to put him in a laundry basket when he was little. Two laundry baskets, one on the bottom, one on the top, and put him inside of it, and then duct tape the things closed, and then roll it down the stairs. And that was like the nice stuff we used to do. So I was no longer terrorizing Jamie because Jesus just didn't think terrorizing your little brother was a great idea. And secondly, my mom saw that I no longer terrorized my mom. You may have heard of strong-willed child. Like, I was the encyclopedia entry for strong-willed child. But Jesus began to change all that. And as a kind of creation ex nihilo, a kind of creation out of nothing, there was, I found in my soul and my life, an increasing measure. Kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness, a kind of graciousness, patience, I wasn't perfect by any means. But the fruit of the Spirit were growing in my life. And my mom could see that. I remember one morning my senior year of high school, I'd been a Christian for a little bit, little bit over a year at this point, and I left the house, as I often did, in a huff, I was mad about something probably like that I had to go to school and it was early. And I did what I often did when I was mad and left for school in a huff because it was early. I terrorized my mother on the way out of the house. But I got to school and I had to excuse myself from my first period because Jesus had brought me under such conviction that I had to go and call mama and apologize to her on the phone and ask for her forgiveness. And when she received that phone call, not when she received, when she hung up the phone and was like, huh? <laughs> she saw something. She saw that disciples are distinct. And she saw not me, she saw Christ in me. And it directed her attention not to me, but to Christ. Salt and light direct people to the source of saltiness and the source of light. My mother, a few months after that phone call, ended up coming to Christ, saving faith in Jesus, because there was something irresistibly compelling, not about me, but about Christ in me, something compelling about a distinct disciple that she was able to see up close and very personal. And my little brother Jamie, you know, the one I terrorized with laundry baskets. It took him nearly 20 years longer than my mom, but 
My little brother Jamie came to Christ a couple of years ago too. Seeing not me, but Christ in me. Do you know that little children's song that is sometimes sung in conjunction with this passage of Scripture? You know that song, This Little Light of Mine? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm missing the melody here, I'm sure. (laughs) I didn't grow up in Sunday school. I never actually sang this song, right? (laughs) Going to let it shine, let it shine all the time and let it shine. And then the rousing kind of response, the stanza that we love to sing and the little kids start whooping and hollering, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine all the time. Well, it's a great peppy song. The only problem is it almost misses the point of this passage. Because Jesus, you see, is quite emphatic about the fact that followers of Jesus, they are salt of the earth. They are light of the world. You are a city on a hill. And as Jesus says, you cannot hide a city on a hill just like you cannot hide light. There's no hiding light under a bushel. There's no sort of not being salty when you're salt. The only two options are either this, this, either follow Jesus and shine, Or don't follow Jesus. Salt and light, brothers and sisters, listen, isn't an activity you do. Jesus is not saying, hey, go be salty. Hey, go be lighty. It's not an activity. It's not a command. It's not a duty. It is ontology. What is that? It is identity. Not an activity you do. It is an identity you have. Somebody tweet that. (laughs) Somebody write that down. Not activity. It is identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That means disciples are distinct. And the distinction It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because it ultimately points people to Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All God's people said... Father, thank you for this identity that you have given your followers. Not to try to be light, not to muster up the courage to be light, but to reckon with the fact that we are light, we are salt. Therefore, we are distinct. Lord Jesus, this is exactly who you were in the world. Radiant in glory, lighting up darkness, being savory and winsome and attractive. 
because of the distinctiveness of who you are. Thank you that you transfer that same identity to us as your followers. May we own it. May we embrace it. May we not try to earn it or achieve it, but rest in it. And may it make sense of our experience. And may it encourage us. May it encourage us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.